Make your way to 1 Timothy tonight, and we are now embarking on chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. Chapter 5, we are, we are moving right along, and I'm surprised at the clip that we're keeping up as we move through 1 Timothy. We have come through some weighty sections, and we are moving now into the really the final, the final portion of Paul's letter. He really only has three major emphases left. He'll emphasize the relational aspects that we're going to study this evening all the way through chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6, and we're going to look at this in just a moment, and then he'll deal with false teachers again, and he'll call Timothy to fight the good fight, and the letter of 1 Timothy will come to a conclusion. That'll be it. And we'll move to the second letter to Timothy and examine the truths that are found there from the Apostle Paul. Now, last week, we looked at a very key section in the letter. We looked at verses 11 to 16 of chapter 4. And this was crucial, you remember, to our own situation as a brand new ministry because Timothy was a young man. And because of his youthfulness and because of the fact that the Ephesian church did not vote on Pastor Timothy coming to be their pastor... There was no group of men who called him to come. He was not welcomed. In fact, there were elders and teachers within the church at Ephesus who were probably anything but happy to see young whippersnapper Timothy show up on the scene. Not only that, but Timothy was sent there by the Apostle Paul, and he was sent there because the church at Ephesus was in need of restoring. It was in need of health and care from a pastor with God's initiatives and God's purposes in heart. And so Timothy shows up on the scene. He's not welcomed there. It's not that they wanted him to come. He's a young pastor in his first role outside of the apostles' ministry. And he is in a situation that is laden with false teaching and error on every side. And we really can't even empathize with Timothy. I don't think any of us can relate to the depth of fear and timidity that was marking him. He needed a shot in the arm of confidence and of correction about his ministry as a young pastor. And verses 11 to 16 were Paul's words to him to instruct him particularly about his youthfulness as the leader at the church of Ephesus. This was a crucial part of the letter because it stands as the basis for what we're going to study tonight, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. This evening, we're going to continue to look at the pastoral admonitions. These are very specific. They are very personal to Timothy. They are very personal and specific to a situation. This is a young leadership with a diverse body of believers gathered together. And so it is particularly important for us to look at this together. Now you'll remember that Paul contrasted false teachers in 4, 1 to 5 with the good servant in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 4. That was kind of the contrast. He was holding up two opposite ends of the spectrum. He had the false teachers, those who were teaching error, whose consciences were seared. Remember their ill motives, their evil motives. And he contrasts that with the good servant who is disciplined, who has a diet that is spiritual in its nature who trains himself for the sole purpose of godliness. 
And so he held up that comparison. Then he focused on the nature of true success for Timothy in 11 to 16. What is Timothy's measuring stick for success as a young and new pastor in a very difficult situation? And now, this week, and for the weeks to come, Paul is going to address the relationships that are to mark the ministry of the local church. And so we're going to be talking about relationships. Not relationships in the topical sense that you might think of at face value, but the relationships of the pastoral team and particularly the young pastor to those within the congregation. What was the church's responsibility as it related to itself? And what was Timothy's responsibility in particular as he related to the body of Christ that he was serving? I was talking with Dick and Irene after last week's time of study, and I was telling them how, how good of an idea this seemed at the very beginning. In fact, I was over in Texas and uh, spending too much of my time thinking about what would be going on in the upcoming months in Kingsburg, and I thought, man, this will be a good idea. I remember Renee and I talking about this. We're going to go through the pastoral epistles. These are the bedrock of pastoral ministry. These will lay the expectations in the right place. Maybe we should have said these will lay the expectations in the right place, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we're going to go again to expectations that you ought to have for the leadership of the local church. These are, these are divinely inspired expectations and relationship instructions for young Timothy. And that's what we're going to feed on for the next several weeks. Nothing is more critical to the effectiveness of young Pastor Timothy's ministry than his relationship to the people of God gathered in the troubled church at Ephesus. Right? Truth is stale unless it is met with a relationship where the truth is exchanged, where there is love and compassion around the truth. Truth without love and relationships is sterile knowledge. But knowledge that turns to love and action towards one another is the lifeblood of the people of God in the church. Okay? So that brings us to chapter 5. And really, I want to take just a few moments before we even jump into our time of study to give you a bird's eye view of where we're going. Just in the relationship section of 1 Timothy. We're going to look tonight at pastoral relationships in general in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Really, Paul just takes the whole church and he breaks them down into four categories. And he says, here are your relationship to the general population of the church. Timothy, this ought to guide you. This ought to be your expectation. Young pastor in a new ministry, grace church, leadership, this ought to guide you. And really, as examples, leaders are those who serve and set an example. This ought to be the standard of our relationships in the body, period, with one another. And so we're going to look at the general relationships within the body, and then we're going to move to the specific. So we're going from the general or the broad to the narrow or the specific in chapter 5 and all the way into chapter 6. First of all, and tonight, we're going to look at care for widows. Now, if you're a Bible reader and you've been reading in 1 Timothy, you know that the section on the widows goes from verse 3 all the way to verse 16. 
we're going to divide that. And I think Paul divides that for us. And we're going to look at that, of course, over the next several weeks. We're going to look first at the care, the honoring of the widows in verses 3 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 16, we're going to look at the ministry of widows or the listing of widows. Two different categories for one group of people. Care for the widows in 3 to 8 and then ministry for the widows in verses 9 to 16. Now, when we get to verse 17, we turn a corner from widows to those who were serving as elders within the church. That is, those who held the office of elder or pastor within the church at Ephesus. And that's pretty amazing because that's exciting to think about. All that's gone on, all that we know about the church now from Paul's writing, he now is going to address how Timothy and how the church is to consider those elders that are already serving there within the ministry at Ephesus. That's going to take us all the way through the conclusion of chapter 5. And the first two verses, excuse me, of chapter 6, will conclude the specific relationships in the church dealing with slaves who were a part of the church. Isn't that curious? I mean, if we go to Paul's writing elsewhere, he usually ramps up to slaves. He'll spend time with husbands, wives, this is Colossians, Ephesians, husbands, wives, children, parents, and then we'll get to masters, and then we'll deal with slaves, all within the scheme of the relationship of the body in the early church. Here in 1 Timothy, he's going to deal with Timothy's response and admonitions for the slaves, particularly who were in the church at Ephesus. His focus is on their attitude towards their masters. And as the body of Christ is diverse, Paul takes special care to deal with those three categories within the church. Okay, so these are the pastoral relationships, and this flows directly connected to the young Timothy's example of being a believer in his word, in his conduct, and in his faith, and in his purity. He is to be an example, and these relationships are to back up that example. You know, as well as I know, that every uh, youthful leader is plagued with the opportunity for his instruction, particularly teaching leaders, for their instruction to be undermined by their lifestyle or by their words. It's general in our culture that the older generation looks at the younger generation and wonders if they'll stand the test of time. Will their lives be true to what they say? And Paul is not unaware of that in early Ephesus. So he tells Timothy, not only is your life to model what you teach, but your relationships to the body of Christ are to further back up what I'm calling you to command and instruct the body there in Ephesus. Okay? I think that gets us to verse 1 of chapter 5. And the remainder of our time will be spent here. Let's read together. And let's read all the way. Let's read 1, verse 1, all the way down through verse 16, just to give us the context that we're going to be dealing with. Verse 1 then of chapter 5, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Encourage, stays the verb, younger men as brothers. So encourage younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women, pardon me, as sisters in all purity. Honor widows 
who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9 says, Let a widow be enrolled or enlisted if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and to incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Beside that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. I can only imagine Timothy having to read this in front of the church for the first time. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And this is the word of the Lord. Relationships are crucial to the ministry of the young pastor, and they are crucial for Young Grace Church as well. Let's examine the general relationships in the church, and then we'll look at the specifics that Paul has for Timothy as it regards to true widows in the local church. All right? First of all, pastoral relationships in general in verses 1 and 2. Coming right off of the clear teaching of verse 11 in chapter 4, Paul has told Timothy in common vernacular, suck it up, get some backbone, step up and say what needs to be said. Timothy, there's error that's running rampant. It's being unchecked in the church. And I'm calling on you as your apostolic leader to step up to the plate and do what needs to be done and say what needs to be said. And it's as if right on the heels of that, Paul now has in his mind a caution for Timothy as he deals with the body of Christ in this time of crisis and error in the church at Ephesus. He's concerned that Timothy, like so many other young people and young leaders, would swing on the pendulum from being timid and shy to being in your face with God's people which is never the characteristic of a loving under-shepherd under the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And so he outlines these four relationships for Timothy that really cover the whole spectrum, right? There's nobody left out of this when it's referencing adults within the local body of the church. So let's look at it. These are not difficult, but they're important for us to understand. 
First of all, do not rebuke an older man. Do not rebuke an older man. Older men are not to be confronted and rebuked in some fashion that would defy the respect that is theirs and rightly theirs by default of their age. You see, standing for the truth and a pastor who would be firm in the truth does not give the right for the young to disrespect and to publicly rebuke and to privately rebuke inappropriately an older man. Timothy was no doubt going to have to deal with men who were his elders. That is, by age. And that's the right translation, older men. This is not speaking of the office of elder. This is speaking particularly to those within the group of the church that were older than Timothy. And in dealing with these people, particularly those who were teaching error, Timothy would be confronted with the opportunity to rebuke in a fashion that would undermine his ministry. And it would give cause for despising his youth. And so Paul's concerned. Paul says, don't rebuke an older man. And then there's a strong contrast. We don't get it in our language, but the word but is a very strong word. Paul is contrasting. Don't do this, but please do this. Here are the two sides of the coin. Don't rebuke an older man, but... Here's what Timothy is to do. He's to encourage him as you would a father. So he is to approach older men within the church, not with timidity, not with fear of speaking the truth, but with the respect and the fear that he would come to his own father if he were to deal with sin in the life of his own dad. Now, some of you come from a different situation where this may be difficult to understand. We don't even know about Timothy's home life, right? We don't know who his father was or what he was like. But I, for one, do not have issue understanding and applying what this means when it speaks of encouraging as I would my father. The thought of rebuking my dad has crossed my mind in days gone by, foolish days gone by. And in fact, the thought of confronting my dad has at one time not only crossed my mind, but it has actually taken on life form and has been lived out in my life. And it was a day to live in infamy. My dad is a healthy man. He's 6'6", 250 plus. We'll give him that. He's a big guy. And he demanded my authority. He's a hardworking, honest, fair man who demanded the respect of his children, and rightly so. Kind and loving. And to go to my father... And to speak to my father the truth of God's word, if there were an area of his life that I had to confront and rebuke with God's truth, it would be done with such care and caution that there would be no disrespect given in the approach that I took to my own father. Timothy obviously would have understood this, and Paul says, just apply that to every older man within the church. Just make that the blanket principle. Respect, honor, and truth. Do not rebuke 
but encourage him as you would a father. So the first relationship that Timothy needs to be concerned about are the older men within the church. As a young leader, he is to be concerned about his approach to older men. John Stott, who I read on the pastorals often, and if you want to buy a good commentary that's easy to read, John Stott, S-T-O-T-T, is a good one. And he is the, probably the premier expositor in Europe for some time. John Stott speaks of coming to the West, that is, coming to America, and having kids that are old enough to be his great-grandchildren call him by his, what he calls his Christian name, calling him John. He says, I find that to be the most peculiar thing, because here are people who, by, by default of their age, and by default of me being an old man, we should not be relating to one another as if we are peers. Spiritually, we are equal. We are brothers in Christ, though older brothers and younger brothers. And yet respect and encouragement and honor are to be the hallmarks of Timothy's relationship to older men. That should be the standard of Grace Church. Older men are to be respected. They are to be encouraged with the truth, but they are to be done, it is to be done so as we would to our own father. Now, the second category is younger men. He just keeps it within gender. We'll deal with the men, and then we'll deal with the ladies. Younger men, Timothy is to approach them as brothers. You say, well, that's natural. Peers naturally gravitate to each other and have a brother-like relationship to one another. I think it's important for us to understand, again, and be reminded of the context in which Timothy is ministering. He is in hostile territory. He's in a church that is in upheaval, There is error on every side, and he is dealing with both older men who are standing opposed to him, and he is dealing with younger men who are potentially confused or standing opposed to him. And he is to approach these younger men as his brothers in Christ. You say, what is the contrast between dealing with younger men as brothers? He is not to treat them as underlings or as second-class citizens within the church. So it would, be, it would be the temptation of the young leader and young Timothy and young Adam to think that because of responsibility given and gifts granted by the Spirit, that there is some level of difference between the peer group within the local assembly. And that's just not the truth. They are to be treated as brothers, as those that are loved and respected, who are familiar, who we relate to, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. This is not difficult. If you have trouble honoring and loving your mom, then maybe this would be a little bit tough for you, but older women are to be treated as as mothers. Respect and honor, deference, affection, should mark the relationship of the young leadership to the older women within the church. And that should be characteristic of the church in general. Older women are to be loved and revered and honored and praised just like our own mothers. So in Grace Church, we should have 50 or 60 of the best apple pies on the planet, right? Right? Following? (laughs) Amen. That's right. Amen. Every lady is to be treated as 
has loved like a mother. And then Paul concludes, not just with older women being loved and respected as spiritual mothers within the church, but younger women are to be related to in a particular way as well. Younger women as sisters in all purity. And Paul is obviously concerned about the potential for there to be um, cause for excuse for inappropriate relationships between younger leaders and young women within the church at Ephesus. He tells Timothy, be careful. You do not rebuke older men. You encourage them as a father. You deal with younger men as your brothers in Christ. You deal with older ladies as your mother with that honor and respect and love. And you deal with younger women as sisters, but there's a clause attached to the sisters. They're not your sisters, but you are to treat them as sisters, and that is to be set apart in all purity. Younger women are to be loved by the leadership with the chaste and protective love of a brother for his sister. Right? So the leadership within the ministry of the local church is to love God's people. It's to love and encourage older men. It's to love and come alongside of and provoke younger men as brothers. It's to care and nourish and respect older women within the ministry. And it is to relate to the younger women as sisters, loving and protecting them in all purity. And so Paul just gives a big general blanket about the young leadership and its relationship to the church. And it's important for us, because really this can be our roadmap for relating to one another. We ought not to relate to every person within the church the same way, though the content must never change. The truth is central, but the application of that truth differs in its approach depending on who it is that we're dealing with and ministering to. Relationships are tedious realities in the church, and you don't need me to tell you that. All must be cared for, but all must not be cared for in the same way. And the young shepherd must learn to care for the diverse flock of Christ with careful attention to love and respect for each grouping within the church. And so this is the divine standard. Older men are to be respected. Older ladies are to be revered and loved. Younger men are to be counted as brothers and younger women are to be loved and cared for as sisters. This will be this will be the relationship of heaven. We will relate to one another in perfect harmony as the body of Christ. And this is the call of Timothy that as he commands and teaches these things in verse 11 and as he is potentially despised for his youthfulness his relationships would match and would profess and further validate his right to speak the truth as a leader within the church. Okay, now, pastoral relationships in specific, and we deal with widows just briefly tonight in particular. Verse 3 begins, Honor widows who are truly widows. And that's just an interesting phrase right off the bat. We get this we get a question in our mind right off. Why does he say truly widows? Are there fake widows? I mean, are there people who are somehow not entirely widows? 
Well, yes, actually, within the local church that is the case because his concern here is for the honor of widows. And the church is not to honor widows across the board without reference to their character and to their situation. Now, you might want to write in your margin just a note in your Bibles or underline, but honor has a definite context, a definite idea of financial care. Honor is specifically dealing with the financial needs of these true widows. And Paul's going to come back to this word. He's going to use it again later. He's going to speak of honoring elders. They're worthy of double honor who give themselves to teaching and preaching. And we'll talk about that later. But honor has the definite connotation, that's the word I was looking for, has the connotation and definition of financial care. Okay, That, at the outset, needs to be understood. Care, honor, provide for widows who are truly widows. Now, there are two qualifications in verses 3 through 8 for the true widows in the church. So you say, well, how do we know if we have true widows? Well, don't worry. Paul took all these verses to outline for us what the true widow is. And he keeps using the word truly over and over again throughout this section. He is very concerned that there are those who would be counterfeit widows within the church and would demand from the church financial care and provision when in fact they were not worthy of it. They were not truly widows. Okay, so here are the two general characteristics of a true widow. First first characteristic is destitution. Destitution. This lady is destitute. And notice that he does not speak of provision for widowers. Paul's understanding, as would have been the entire theme of the New Testament, was men are to be working. So if a man is left without his wife, he should be able to work and provide for his needs. But we'll deal with some general general admonitions later in the chapter that will deal with that as well. So destitution of this lady, no family to care for her physical needs. And the second characteristic of a true widow is her godliness. Her character. So her situation, that is, she's destitute of any provision. And her character. She is a godly woman. Verse 5 says, She who is truly a widow, and here's the characteristics that are given to us, and these are the two that we've talked about, left all alone, that is, she has no one to provide for her. Understand that at Ephesus there was no social security. There was no welfare system. The government was not providing for those who were in need. And so the true widow is left all alone. And here is her character. She has set her hope on God. And that's seen because she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. This is the prayer warrior of all prayer warriors. This lady has a character that is marked by godliness. The church is responsible for caring for those women who are left without a dowry or relatives to meet her needs and who are committed to hope in God and godliness in general. Now this is the understanding we've got to have when we come to the context of 1 Timothy. We just don't get this. This is hard for us to get. They were still in a dowry system. Right? And we have some general idea of a dowry, a couple goats, 
few sheep. That's usually the joke, right? That uh, the father-in-law would give as a dowry with the bride. The dowry that was given would be the tool that could be used if, in fact, the husband passed away. So the dowry's been paid. The wife has the prerogative to use that. The widow has the prerogative to use that for her own care. Or the new lord or the new head of that house, which would be her firstborn son, could use that as well as his own income to provide for his mom, the widow. The true widow who has come into the church, who loves Christ, is one who is left all alone. No dowry, no family, no one to care for her needs. Maybe war has wiped out her family. Maybe disease has taken all of her male relatives. We think of Ruth and Naomi, right? Remember Ruth and Naomi and the desperate situation in which they found themselves? without a provider, without a kinsman to care for their needs. Verse 4 says, But if if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their their own household and to make some return for their parents or to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And then down in verse 8 it says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and we know this verse well, and especially for members of his household, that is his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And those are amazing words. So what about those who don't qualify as true widows within the church? How are we to relate to those ladies who are widows in the physical sense, but are not true widows? Well, there are two ways that we should be responding to these widows that are not true widows. One would be found in verse 4 and in verse 8. Their children or grandchildren should provide for their needs. So as the church, Timothy is leading Ephesus. Obviously, there was an issue that we don't understand in Ephesus. There were widows in abundance. And so he has to decipher what widow, which widows will be given financial aid from the church? And that is the responsibility of the church. Well, it won't be the ones that have families that could meet their needs. And so Timothy would be bringing the onus back onto the children or grandchildren to care for the needs of their widowed mother or grandmother. Now notice in this first option for those who are not qualified, There are specific applications given to us in verse 4. And it's interesting, there are specific reasons why children and grandchildren are to care for the physical needs of the widows that are either their mothers or grandmothers or aunts for that matter, or great aunts. Look at verse 4. Let's look at some of the reasons. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, first of all, let let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. So the first reason that's given to us for the care of a family, younger generation for the older generation, is to return some of what has been given. Now there's nothing that is more misunderstood as a young person, and I, as a child within the home, I was there not too long ago, than a fundamental misunderstanding and lack of knowledge about how much is given by parents. There's just no understanding. 
And phrases like, what do you think, money grows on trees? We just don't understand why that phrase is being used. Young people often do not understand the price that has been paid for their care. The immense expense of time, energy, resources, finances. And Timothy is commended here that he should be He should be recommending that children and grandchildren take up the care of these widows to return some of what has been given. This makes sense. This is logical. This widow has poured out her life. She has nurtured and cared for these children and grandchildren, and now they should return some of what has been given. Secondly, it is pleasing to God, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So they ought to be doing this because this pleases their God. The assumption is that They are concerned with pleasing God. Thirdly, verse 8, it is important for them to care for their widow, their relative who is a widow, to express and to not deny the faith that they claim to have, right? For to deny the provision for widows within your own family is to deny your faith. The unbelieving world understands that children and grandchildren care for those who are their older generation, particularly for the widows who are left to their family. And so to affirm and to express and not deny their faith, they are commended to take care of these precious widows. And then if we skip down to verse 16, we see one final reason given to them. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And so the final reason is to relieve pressure from the church financially in caring for those who are truly in need. Okay, so these are all the reasons why the first scenario for those who don't match up to being truly widows that is, widows that are cared for financially by the church. These are all reasons why children and grandchildren should be burdened with the care of the widows. Now, there's a second option, and that's found in verse 6. The second option is some widows need spiritual life more than they need provision. Verse 6 says, But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And leave it to Paul to use the strongest language possible, I can't fathom reading that in front of elderly ladies who were widows in the church. You just got done reading about treating them as mothers, and yet you're going to tell some of them that your self-indulgence, you're already dead. You're as good as dead. Yes, there's blood pumping through your veins. Yes, your heart is beating and your brain is active. But your life, your spiritual life, you might as well already be dead because you're living for yourself. So there is another disqualification of widows from the honor, the care financially of the church. And that is a widow, a physical widow, who is living for self-indulgence. She is not to be cared for and not to be indulged by the church, but is to be called to repentance. Now there is a very real possibility that this is addressing a very specific issue in Ephesus. There's a very real possibility that what Paul is addressing here are those ladies who were not committed 
and setting their hope on God, but rather to meet their own desires and to provide for their own way, they were selling themselves for return. They were self-indulgent to the highest and most grotesque level. Timothy says, these ladies are not to be cared for. They are not to be indulged by the church financially. They are spiritually dead, even though they are physically alive. They are to be dealt with with the gospel. This is their greatest need. And in response to the gospel, if they are left all alone and turn and set their hope on God, then they would be considered truly widows. Okay? So that is the answer about what do we do with those who do not qualify for the church's financial care as widows. Now Timothy is called, in verse 7, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. And the they is the widows. Let the widows know that they are to be setting their hope on God, being prayer warriors, being spiritually minded and godly ladies, and not self-indulgent, so that their lives may be without reproach as well. This is important stuff. This is relational material for the local church. And this is vital for the proper administration of the church for this young pastor, Timothy, as he speaks the truth in love. So the true widows are those who are left destitute and all alone and who have set their hope on God. And they are to be cared for financially by the church. This hasn't changed. Okay? This has not changed. This is a standard of the local church that will not change because this is a divinely passed down standard. Those who are left destitute, those who are setting their hope on God, are to be cared for by the local church financially. You need to know, and I need to know, and be committed to this reality in our church. One of the hardest things in our present day lifestyle in America is finding out who is in this category. We all look the same. We all talk the same. And we are, are, are plagued with pride of not communicating destitution and need. I don't think it stretches our application to look at, as James 1 tells us, true religion is orphans and wid- caring for orphans and widows. Jesus was concerned about those widows who were most destitute. I don't think our application is stretched too far for us to say all women within the church who are left to their own resources, who are uncared for, unprovided for, and who are godly and setting their hope on God are to be cared for and provided for by the church. And today, that probably has more expression in single moms who are left without child support without financial backing from their divorced husbands who are serving Christ, who are loving Christ, and who are left all alone in raising their children. I don't think that stretches the application of what we find here. Surely the focus is on those whose husbands have died, who have passed away, and yet practical widows are those who are left destitute to care for their families without an income. So, there are just basic questions for us tonight. That is 1 Timothy 5, 1-8. 1 
First question, are we relating rightly to the body of Christ? Is your leadership relating properly to those within the body, the general categories? And are you, as the body of Christ, relating to one another appropriately in those general categories? This is vital for us to be a ministry that brings glory to God, that is effective with the gospel, that these mark us, these relationships. Can you imagine a church, can you fathom a church where older men are encouraged like fathers by the younger men? Where younger men, the camaraderie is like a band of brothers. Where the older ladies of the church are spiritual moms to all those who are younger. And the younger ladies within the church are loved and protected and cared for like younger sisters. Can you imagine what that would be like? That would be a church that would be relating as God has designed it. And most of us haven't seen many of those. It's my prayer that Grace Church, we would live out in obedience these relationships, beginning with leadership and young leadership as it relates to these categories. And then secondly, and specifically, are we relating rightly to widows? Is this a concern and a care of our ministry? Is this something that you think about, that you've set as an expectation for our church and our life and the leadership that oversees this ministry? It should be. This is real. This is important. This is the life of the church caring for orphans and widows, for those who are left all alone and setting their hope on God. And finally, we have to ask a question as a secondary application. Are we as children and as relatives committed to caring for our families for the right reasons? To return in gratitude what they've given, to please our God who is pleased by the care of our relatives to express and not deny our faith, verse 8, and to spare the church the burden of care so that it can be doled out to others. With today's provision for elderly, we must not undermine the responsibility of the family and of the church to care for the widows. This is the testimony of the early church. You remember in Acts, this was the whole reason why they needed to have some deacons come alongside of the leadership of the church because the widows were getting so many that some were getting left without meals. They couldn't get them out there fast enough. There were too many. This has been a staple activity. This has been a hallmark of the church and it must be the standard and hallmark of Grace Church as well and of the young leadership that God has placed here. Let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Honor the widows who are truly widows. And next week we'll look at enrolling or enlisting those widows for the sake of ministry.